You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. We want to welcome Joshua to the staff of uh, White Ridge Baptist Church this summer, and uh, looking forward to getting to know you, Josh, and the Lord bless you as you work, and pray that all of us would support him and encourage him in prayer, as well as uh, any way that uh, he needs our support or help, so God bless you. Well, we're in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, again, now we're, we're starting into chapter 4, this big turning point in the book of Ephesians. Paul is very methodical about his teaching. When he writes these letters, he, he was uh, very conscious of the fact that he was front-loading all this theology, all this teaching, all this belief at the front end of his letters, and then at the end he would, he would back-load all the application and all the, the uh, practical living out of it. So he goes from theology to practice, from exposition to exhortation, from the uh, indicative mode to the imperative mode. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, how... In the first three chapters, there's only one imperative command in the whole three chapters. Chapter 2, verse 11, when we're told to remember who we once were and who we are now. And, and so there's this incredible design to Paul's writing and his ways. And so as we open up our Bibles now in chapter 4, we, we, we have a turning point that we're going to be looking at today. And I'd invite you to turn to Ephesians now, chapter 4. And if you're able to stand with me, would you stand right now and join me in the reading of God's Word? As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you. And uh, this morning, as I was looking over my message, I realized that I had spent more time on the kind of the the stuff that came after that, and I realized I hadn't really done a study of some of those other words, and so I looked up the word urge in this passage. I urge you. In some of the older translations, I beseech thee. And uh, Paul's fond of this word. He did a lot of urging. I want you to note that he did not say to the Ephesians, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I threaten you. Or as a prisoner for the Lord, then I guilt you to live a life worthy of the Lord. I bet you that if we took a show of hands, and we won't, but probably all of you or many of you have had a religious experience in the past where someone was trying to help you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received, but they were using other means besides urging there was guilt, and there was threats, and there was, oh, I don't know what people use. I, I know that I have sat under that kind of ministry. God knows that the, the highest, clearest, brightest, cleanest air of motivation that we could ever breathe comes from a heart of love. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for the love of Christ compels us. 
guilt and threats and other ways of trying to get people to live a certain way does not work. And so he uses the word urge, I urge you. And I, I had to look that word up and I didn't realize it till this morning that that word is a close relative of the word that is used of the Holy Spirit, of the parakletos. The one that the, that the Lord gives to come alongside of you. The comforter, the counselor. The word has an idea of comfort in it. This is not a beat you up word, this is a build you up word. Paul's way of motivating the Ephesians to move from their exposition and theology to the practice of it and the living out of it in a way that's worthy is to come alongside of them, to come beside them, encourage them, to get down in the trenches and say, hey, if you need a little help, I'll be with you. I'm going to come alongside. I'm going to urge you. I love that. I hope that I am not the kind of preacher, pastor, teacher that is using guilt or threats or anything. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We urge one another to live a life worthy Worthy. You see, because we, we understand how God works. Yesterday, Pat and I were teaching a course for Cary Theological College. It was a group of 20 Africans. Just wonderful privilege of, of being able to walk beside these, these African brothers and sisters as they're studying. And, and, you know, every culture does church differently. Every culture puts together discipleship or worship or fellowship or prayer differently. And, and many of these African brothers and sisters could really identify with this. You know, it doesn't work to guilt or threaten or use fear in people's lives. Many of them come from regimes or political scenes or religious places that have, have tried that. Because, you see, the way that God works and is from the inside out. He works by means of transformation, not conforming. And another place where Paul does exactly what he does in Ephesians is in Romans. He front loads all the theology, and then in chapter 12, verse 1, what does he say? He says, I urge you, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. That's your acceptable worship. And do not conform and the word there is schema, outward appearance, like a skeleton. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. That's the word metamorphe. Be transformed. It's an inside towards out change. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, Paul does it there again. He's, he's moving from theology to practice, and what's his motivating force? He uses the same word, I urge you. I urge you, I come alongside of you, I, I want to encourage you, love, the, the information or the transformation that God is doing in our lives comes from the inside and it moves out to the practice of living it out in our lives. In chapter 4 verse 1 he goes on, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy. The word worthy is the word axios, where we get our word axiom from. An axiom is a word that means to be of equal weight or value. An axiom is a self-evident truth that needs no explanation. That's an axiom. A self-evident truth that needs no explanation. 
And so what Paul is teaching here is that if you're going to live worthy, then your life is going to be self-evidently consistent with all the grace and the blessings that you've received in Christ. So as you live out your life, you're going to be not a contradiction, but a self-evident truth that you have been abundantly blessed. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and now because of that, your life is going to live consistent with that, worthy of that. And so because you've been given all this treasure in heaven, you don't have to worry about all this stupid stuff on earth. You don't get stressed about that. And because you've been forgiven of much, you can forgive those little things that other people do against you. And, and, and there's so many because of this. I mean, like, that's the issue. Let it be self-evident. Be an axiom. Let it be self-evident that you have been graced by God in abundant ways, and now you're just living it out. You're just living it out. Timothy Keller writes in one of his books about a study that was reported on in the New York Times in January 7, 2007. And the study was called the Happiness Study 101. Happiness 101. And the article describes how a group of scientists, researchers, applied the scientific empirical research methodology to the whole understanding of what is it that gives people pleasure and makes them happy. Happiness 101. And so what they, what they determined was that they found out that if people focus on doing things and getting things that bring them pleasure, they don't actually lead to happiness. That if you pursue it, it does not actually lead to happiness. But rather, their conclusion... In fact, what they said was it leads to what they called a hedonic treadmill. This idea of pursuing pleasure and, and never having enough to actually satisfy you. But instead, what they determined was the best way to increase your happiness is to actually do acts of selfless kindness and to pour out your life for the needs of others. They wrote that this leads to better outcomes. And the outcomes that they were looking for were well-being, meaning, purpose in life, close relationships, and love. So they argued that, that if in order to be happy and to have these outcomes, you should pursue a selfless life that centers on the needs of others. Well, do you see the obvious in this? <laughs> Timothy Keller goes on in his book to describe the obvious, that, that indeed, if I lead an unselfish life primarily to make myself happy, then it's no longer an unselfish life. I'm not really doing the acts of kindness for someone else if I'm doing it for my own pleasure. Living an unselfish life for selfish reasons should be a wake-up call that there's something incongruent in my walk, in the internal and the external. The Bible has a word for it. It's called hypocrisy. But the researchers didn't concern themselves with that. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. Does it, does it mean somehow that we are to do good and serve needs of others and be unselfish and look outward with the covert goal of meeting our own pleasure principles and happiness orientation? 
Do we love Winnipeg in a few weeks? Do we love Winnipeg because it makes us feel so good? Aren't we doing something? Do we go on mission trips because it, it, it really helps us with what we're needing to be done in this church? Is that why we do that? I think that God confronts us in this kind of thing, and, and the Lord shows us that indeed uh, the way of Christ is not that way at all. The way of Christ is that, that the worthy life is, is having received all this abundant blessing it's just natural to turn that vertical grace horizontal and just pour it out on other people. And in the byproduct of it, if a few researchers sociologically figure out that that's a better way to happiness, go figure that the designer of it all would make it that way. You'll notice in your outline in the blue insert in your bulletin that there are three points I'd like to share this morning. That Paul teaches of a worthy life. There's number one, that it it reveals the true character of God's people. Number two, that it reveals the true quality of our fellowship. And thirdly, that it really reveals the true nature of the God that we worship. And so let's take a look at these three pieces. Number one, the unity of the church and the character of, our, of, uh, of God's people. How is unity or oneness in a marriage, in a family, or in a church uh, affected by the character of the individuals involved? Doesn't that sound like a kind of a silly question? We all know by experience that when people have godly, mature, or Christ-like character, that it affects all of their relationships. Everything is more stable, and all of life runs smoother. Any, any system, whether it's a team, a church, a business, a family, a marriage, the dysfunctionality of any system is really governed by the character of the people that are in that system, in that relationship. Before we look at these virtues that are found in verse 2, I just want to say one thing that Paul is doing here, is that he is talking to the whole church in Ephesus in verse 1. And of course, when we read you in verse 1, we, th we could think he's talking to one individual, but we know it's a plural you in the Greek text. So, you know, when we were in Bolivia, I didn't just learn Spanish. I learned how to talk the deep south as well because we had some colleagues that were from the States. And, and so if I was going to be talking just to this, this section and I didn't want to talk to you, I would say y'all over here. You know, y'all listen to what Paul's saying here, okay? But if I wanted to include you over here, I'd say all y'all. <laughs> Have you ever heard people talk like that? They do that. That's, that's a better indication, really, of what, what Paul's saying here. He's saying to the whole church at Ephesus, because if one person decides that they're not going to be following the virtues of verse 2, one person is enough to throw the whole thing out of kilter. One person in a marriage is enough to throw that marriage into crisis. One person in a family can hijack the agenda of that family and take them on a road of disunity. One person in a church can stir enough up trouble to cause problems. So he says to the whole church, pursue all this, all of you. What does he say in verse 2? Well, there's some clear goals, and it starts with the character of the people. It starts with character issues, humility, gentleness, patience. I want you to notice on the back of the blue insert that we have, that we have a continuum there that says, from Christ to Christ-likeness. 
And in a couple of weeks, Doug is going to be sharing with you more about this continuum. But I want you to note that the first one of the continuums is there, and it's all about character. Because you see, the transformation that takes place from the inside out always starts with character. Whether it's Jesus or Paul or some of the other apostles and writers of the New Testament, they all talk about character more than anything else. Because you see, the change that God is working in us, it always starts with the inside, the issues, the attitudes, the motives, the character issues. Because that stuff affects the bond of peace that we're going to be talking about in a moment. And so this is our, our way of thinking, what is a maturing follower of Christ look like? Notice that there's four words primarily. The first word is humility or humble. The word has to do with the frame of mind, an attitude in relation to other people. See, you cannot, this word humble cannot be defined without relationship to other people. I don't know if I'm humble unless I'm in relationship with you. I don't know. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, that's the same word, consider others better than yourselves. See, I bet you that's never a counsel that is little Johnny or Mary get on their way out, going out the door to school in the morning. Johnny, Mary, you consider others better than yourselves today. There's something in us that we've been so psychologized in our generation that we somehow think that that would be like blasphemy to our little children. What God's not saying here in His Word that you are less than other people and therefore others are better than you. He's saying consider others better than you. Treat them that way. See, that's what humility does. The quality of humility, you know whether you got it or not because you, you realize that you start to look at other people as more important than you in a healthy way. I mean, all of a sudden, you, you, instead of your agenda taking the full time and vision of your, of your day, humility says, well, why wouldn't what you're asking me to do be as important as what I'm thinking I have to do? Humility is an incredibly difficult thing. Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's our example. Humility. The Greeks and the Romans despised this quality. They saw it as slave-like. They saw humility as that which accompanied a station in life that someone was assigned and could not do anything about, a slave. Why would a slave be humble? Because he had to be. He had to listen to everybody around him. And a, someone that was given a station in life that was higher than that, why would they choose to be humble and think of others better than themselves? Jesus comes along and says, no, my, my kingdom's upside down. You're not thinking right if you're still thinking that way. Be humble. The second word is be gentle, meekness. Uh, please hear, uh, people hear in this word meekness, weakness, but it's not weakness. It's this power under control. It's a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. The same spirit of power is at work in us, and it comes out in gentleness. Chapter 6, verse 1 of Galatians says, If, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual... Restore him gently. 
ever been caught in sin? You ever been down in, in the trenches in your own weakness, in your own mire, and then God raises up someone to come along and to help you out of that trench? I hope that they come along with the spirit of gentleness, meekness. That's sure, sure the, sure the person I want uh, when I'm caught in sin or in weakness. Someone that comes along. Meekness, gentleness is that quality of God's Spirit upon the people of God. It's like the gloves that God gives to us when we're handling very sensitive, tender, vulnerable situations or areas of each other's lives. Gentleness. We need to be gentle. Then the next one is patience, long-suffering, macrothumia. It's the word long-suffering as opposed to being short-tempered. It means that you, you are willing to see the long view of somebody else's life, that God is working in that person and he's not done yet. Like that bumper sticker, please be patient, God is not finished with me yet. And so long-suffering, another fruit of the Holy Spirit, patience. And then fourthly, forbearing. Again, a word that has to do with suffering. If you're going to live a life worthy and be an instrument of peace, then you're going to have to be forbearing. Again, you can't do that without relationship. You cannot be forbearing all by yourself. <laughs> you have to be with relationship with somebody. You get down in the trenches of somebody else's mess and you forbear. You, you, you walk through that muck with them. It's not your problem. But you're going to enter their life and forbear in love. I wonder, even now as I say this, who is the Holy Spirit putting on your mind right now that you're called by God to be gentle with, humble with, patient with, and forbear? And God's saying to you, get down in the trenches of their mess. Be patient. Be forbearing. Help them because... They're going to get out of it. You see, when you're self-aware enough that you need people to be long-suffering with you and patient with you, when you're, when you're aware of that enough, self-awareness, you're able to do it for others. You know, I've been listening to some of you that have been taking the Who I Am in Christ course with Pastor Doug. And I think next uh, Saturday is your last one. And uh, I've heard various ones that have said it's been a lot about self-awareness. Self-awareness. I need what, I, what I'm asked to give to others. I need them to give to me. It's interesting, this list, isn't it? You would think that maybe Paul, having an opportunity to describe the qualities that would be of spiritual stature, that he might use other words. But instead, he uses words like humility, gentleness, patience, and long-suffering in love. I think sometimes we would have put together different words to describe spiritual stature and maturity, but not in God's book. In God's book, that's maturity. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And we're a living contradiction. We're a living contradiction if we're not humble, gentle. When we argue about who's going to unload the dishwasher, who's going to pick up poop, in the backyard. Who's going to rake the leaves? Who's going to shovel the snow? Don't mention that anymore, right? We're a living contradiction. 
Because, you see, we're supposed to be an axiom, a self-evident truth. Of course I'll do it. I'm not saying this to guilt you. I don't do that. I tried this on the first service. I said, some pastors make terrible travel agents because they always want to send people on guilt trips. You, you responded the same way the first service did. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have tried it. Let's move to the second point. The unity of the church and the quality of their fellowship. Paul moves on from verse 2. He doesn't skip a beat. There's no pause. He says, endeavoring, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. These character traits of the Holy Spirit are going to be the very thing that will equip you to help keep the unity of the Spirit in your relationships through the bond of peace. And without them, you won't have success in relationship. Without humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering, you will be unsuccessful in relationship. You will not keep unity in relationship, you will not have the bond of peace. That word bond is that word that is used in other parts to talk about the ligaments and the joints of your body. The thing that holds your body together is the bond. And the thing that holds the body of Christ together is the bond of peace. And you don't do well in that unless you have these characteristics of the Holy Spirit, of the truth of God in you. And so Paul is conveying that... We are to strive to this. You already have the unity of the Spirit, but you're not living it out fully. So it's an already but not yet thing. I read a blog this past week in which someone was exploring the experience of community and, and unity experienced at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting compared to that which was experienced at a local church meeting. And they said that the conclusion was that People bond more deeply over shared brokenness than they do over shared beliefs. Interesting, eh? They got a good point, but they're, it's wrong to pit these two against each other. Because indeed, our shared beliefs and our shared brokenness, brokenness are not mutually exclusive. Deep fellowship must be based on both shared belief and shared healing or brokenness. Deep fellowship is, is, in the, is the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, and it's not just a mind exercise about shared beliefs, but neither is it just an experience exercise devoid of belief. That's why later on in the passage next week that Kevin is going to be preaching in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, he talks about the unity being in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So there's knowledge in our unity, but there's also this experience of faith. And even the knowledge is this epigenosis, this experiential knowledge of Christ. And so our, our unity and our community and our sense of belonging to one another is both a belief held in the head, yes, but also a very real experience between our hearts and our, our lives of doing life together in vulnerability. And finally, not only should our unity of the Spirit show in the substance of our character and in the quality of our fellowship, but it also should express the nature of our God. Look, look at verses 4 to 6. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, 
who is over all and through all and in you all. Many writers believe that this was a hymn originally that they sang in the early church. But what is important to, to see is that Paul is conveying that the unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of the Godhead. Can you imagine that in heaven, God the Father and God the Son would have had a spat, had a disagreement somehow? We can't even think that way because we understand that the doctrine of the Trinity yet holds that there's only one God. We can't even imagine disunity in the Godhead. It's incomprehensible. And it's, it's as incomprehensible that the church of Jesus Christ is somehow disunified. You see, Jesus Christ, from His perspective, who is the head of the body, looks down at His body and says, Gee, I'm still together. I'm still intact. I've not been decapitated. So you might say, well, I left that church because I didn't like the way they da-da-da-da-da-da, and I joined that church because, well, they, they do this. You know, you're fooling yourself. You're still part of the same people that you were ever a part of. Visibly and physically, you might go to different places at different times for different reasons, but you're still part of the same body of Christ because they're just one. And there's seven ones in, this, in these verses because there's one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He could have gone on. He could have said there's one way, there's one life, there's one truth, there's one cross, there's one table. And the host of the table is the Lord Jesus. And he says, come, all you who are weary of trying to figure this out on your own, come to me because I have everything you need. It's all by grace. And the invitation is sent out to you and I, and you and I have responded, and we said to Jesus, I'm in. I'm coming. I'm coming to the table. I'm going to receive the bread, and I'm going to receive the cup. And then we look across the table, and we look at someone else that came. And we say, who invited you here? Do we do that? You see, union with Christ is the only feature necessary for communion with the saints. And so when we gather around the Lord's table, our thoughts should not be on the unworthiness of someone else to be there. We should have enough in our own unworthiness to be preoccupied with. And if we are thinking of anybody else, our thoughts should not center on why they're not in fellowship or something, but rather, what can I do right now, this week, to increase the bond of fellowship with them, the unity of the Spirit through the bond, the ligaments and joints of peace? I invite those that are going to be joining around the table and serving the Lord's Supper to come now and to prepare to receive this meal Isn't it good that the church of Jesus Christ is not a voluntary association of people just like us? That just like the body that you and I have is made up of many parts and very diverse, so also that the body of Christ is made up of many parts and very diverse. And the very thing that Paul has been teaching in Ephesians, 
is that out of Jewish and Gentile and every ethnic group, out of all kinds of denominations and so on, out of, out of the different personalities and socioeconomic brackets of people that are living in society, God says, come together under me, Jesus Christ, my, my grace, and be a family. And if you do that, you're going to marvel the world at what my grace is able to do. And that's why John 17, Jesus prayed that high priestly prayer. May they be brought to, to complete unity so that the world would know that you have sent me. Let's pray. Father God, would you do the work you need to do in our hearts and in our body, in our fellowship. Have your way with us, O oh Jesus. And uh, show us how we can be instruments that keep the unity of the Spirit in our midst through the bond of peace. Thank you for this table, Lord, as we come to it. Open our eyes to more of your grace that invited us to this place. And help us, O oh Lord, to get down into the trenches of somebody else's mess so that they could lift their, their head above the shame, above the guilt, above the distractions of life to hear the invitation as well. In Jesus' name.